Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. It's time for the last word on the environment and John Gibbons joins us. John, are you enjoying the sunshine we're getting right now? Uh, good evening, Ian. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, it's gorgeous weather um, um, and I guess we're probably going to have it what, through the weekend, maybe uh, into early next week. Obviously, the situation in Europe is uh, a great deal more serious. We have uh, the latest heat wave, uh, which is having serious impacts, uh, both in terms of fires. We also have obstruction, for example, on the uh, navigation on the Rhine, I believe, has been obstructed by historically low levels of, in the river. So a lot of their uh, freight goes up and down the Rhine. So I guess we're fortunate, Ian, at the moment to be at the very periphery of Europe. So we're escaping uh, the worst consequences of these uh, rashes of heat waves. And instead, we're getting the spillover of so really what is very pleasant weather. However, um, we have, we're significant rainfall shortages which will certainly begin to have an impact on agricultural production so uh, unfortunately uh, we do need some rain to go to go along with this with this high temperatures let's talk about what we brought you on to talk about and discuss now you have some i suppose two of the three things you want to talk about are alarming in their own ways can we actually start off with the with the more positive one which is joe biden's climate plan has been given the go ahead by us legislators that's right, Ian. This, this really is big news. I mean, Biden campaigned uh, with a promise to bring climate action back onto the US political agenda. It had been completely throttled, obviously, during the, the, the Trump uh, era. I think Obama had made a lot of promises on climate, but had been unable to deliver. I think most people would say that he concentrated uh, for... I guess, domestic reasons on his healthcare agenda and his climate agenda was was a distant second. So, uh, but what was left of it, basically, Trump uh, squashed out pretty effectively uh, during his four years. So Biden very much campaigned on it. Now, he's had huge difficulty, of course, getting this over the line when you have a, a gridlocked political system, as we know, in, in the US. However, Last year, he brought forward a program called the, the Build Back Better Bill, uh, which was a, a $2 trillion package, which was kind of beaten back by the Republicans. So what he's managed this time uh, is is uh, a $370 billion version, if you like. Now, that, that, that element of it is the climate spend. Now, that's on top of a $200 billion uh, in clean energy and climate investments that Biden actually managed to get through last year. So, so between last year and this year, Biden has directed almost $600 billion of investment in the US in the direction of climate action. And this is seriously good news. I think it's probably worth saying, Ian, that maybe it's the, the nature of America and the nature of its politics, that uh, climate interventions there, they tend to be focused on incentives and investments rather than rules and regulations, because Americans have, a, I guess, a strong dislike of rules and regulations. So the, the gist of the legislation that, that Biden has brought forward has been very much about changing the direction uh, of, of travel of America and putting, for example, the plan sees uh, U.S. emissions aim to fall between 31 and 44 percent uh, versus 2005 levels by 2030. Now, that's not bad. Now, it's not where we need to be, but it rec- it's estimated to be about cutting about a billion tons from U.S. emissions by 2030. So it is definitely very much important in the right direction of travel. And it is also very important to say that despite its many travails, America continues to be, uh, if you like, a thought leader globally. And what happens in America tends to ripple into other countries. So American inaction over the last four years on climate or, or 
2016 to 2020 had a very negative impact around the world. And I think what we're seeing here basically is uh, some rubber hitting the road in terms of a, a big climate bill that he's managed to squeeze through, uh, Manny said, against a massive opposition. And basically, he's something to work with. Some of the things, John, are pretty pretty clear. Well, here's what you're offering for rebates on electric vehicles, also getting people to put in heat pumps into their, into their homes, which is all very well and good, and everybody's doing that around the world. But getting the American economy to change, getting away from coal mining, getting away from big industry that are heavy users of emissions and carbon, that's going to be much more difficult. It is It is a much more difficult pathway. But I think that what's important to say, Ian, is that the, the purpose or the, the effect of the regulatory changes and the investment that Biden's administration are pouring in is to reduce the costs of renewable energy and also to reduce the costs, for example, of electric vehicles. America is slightly unusual versus Europe because a huge part of its emissions is tied up with its uh, sprawling transport system. They have oversized vehicles, they have tens of millions of them, a huge highway network, even their heavy goods are moved by road. So they have this massive problem with transport emissions. But the good news, of course, about transport is it's one of the sectors of the economy that can be and will be electrified. So with heavy investment, you can overcome a lot of these on the industrial side, you're absolutely correct. There are bigger challenges there. But again, renewable energy in many cases uh, is is economically comparable with, with fossil fuels. And particularly when you start to strip away a lot of the subsidies that have made fossil fuels possible. Now, there have, be, of course, been some setbacks. We know in June, the US Supreme Court uh, limited the EPA's ability, the US EPA's ability to regulate emissions. That's kind of turned out to be something of a road bump. Uh, and on the other side, I suppose people will say, well, uh, the trade-off for Biden to get to get Joe Manchin, the West Virginian uh, Democrat, the reluctant Democrat, country. in absolute cold country, to, to get Joe Manchin's signature, which he needed, he is the Biden administration, they have allowed the sale of new oil and gas leases, including in the Gulf of Mexico and on federal land. Now, this, of course, is anathema to environmentalists, but the reality is... U.S. politics is a snake pit in terms of getting uh, concerted climate action. And I think, you know, we really have to hold our nose a little bit here and say that what he has achieved is quite remarkable. Because I will say this, Ian, up until really a few weeks ago, climate action in the U.S. was dead in the water. And that has absolutely profound global consequences. A final thought, if I might, on that is it's critically important, of course, that Biden wins in 2024, because if he doesn't, depending on the timing of the legislation that he brings through, it would be possible for an incoming Republican administration to reverse many of these. So he basically, we need, uh, if well, for anyone who's interested in climate regulation and a habitable planet, we really need to see uh, either Biden or another Democrat hold on to the White House for another four years to lock these changes in and make them permanent. The key thing in America, of course, is they will do whatever makes the money. That's the whole, the whole gist of American economy is about the money. At the moment, the money is chasing dirty energy. Once the money is chasing clean energy, the system will change by itself. And what Biden and his colleagues are doing is they're changing the signals away from dirty energy and towards clean energy. And after that, the market will kick in and do its thing. Now, that's the positive news. Let's move on to some of the less good news stories on the environment, because there is not a single place in the world where rainwater is safe to drink. Yeah, this is an amazing study that was uh, published earlier this week. Uh, they're called um, forever chemicals, Ian. And we know, for example, uh, that 19... 19- 
99% of Americans uh, have these chemicals in their bodies. And you can expect a similar proportion in Ireland. Now, the chemicals in question, it's a, it's a, there are a class of chemicals known as PFAS or per and polyfluoroalkyl. Alcohol, And these chemicals have been around basically since the mid-1940s. And I suppose the most famous example of it would be Teflon, which was a, a, the, the non-stick product developed by the DuPont Corporation back, I think they, they actually launched that back in 1946. So since that time, thousands of versions of these PFAS chemicals have flooded into all kinds of products. And these are very much common products. You might see cardboard, uh, wrappers, stain-resistant furniture and carpets, clothes, water-repellent jackets, things like the Gore-Tex jackets. Uh, apparently, 75% of water-resistant clothing currently contain these PFAS. And these chemicals are very bad news. They're, I suppose, for the for the chemistry students in the audience today, these are what are called long-chain chemicals. Basically, that means they have either eight carbon atoms or the shorter version of six carbon atoms. And in simple terms, Ian, that makes them virtually indestructible. There is nothing in the natural world that can break down a long-chain chemical of that length. And what that means is that once these things are released into the wild, once they're you know, into into the atmosphere, into the water systems, into our bodies, there is no way for them to naturally degrade uh, to, to a less harmful form. And again, why we should be concerned about PFAS, uh, they're connected with cancers, testicular cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer. Uh, we know they're connected with serious reproductive issues. We know as well that they affect and weaken the immune system in children. And they're also what are called endocrine disruptors. That basically means they affect human hormone production and regulation with all kinds of uh, negative impacts. Now, on a positive side, uh, the European Union is is planning to ban up to 200 classes of PFAS, uh, PFAS um, by February 23 or starting next year. So starting February 2023, they're bringing in a ban as a group. Now, what they're trying to do here is basically to grant, ban these things as entire chemical groups because there are so many that if you went around trying to ban individual products or individual chemicals, we'd be at this for the next 50 years. So the intention here, the EU recognises that these are persistent toxic chemicals that accumulate in the human body, they accumulate in the water systems and they accumulate in the, in the wider atmosphere. And for example, the study uh, authors, when they looked at this, they, they did rainwater testing in the Tibetan plateau and they did it in areas of Antarctica. And what they discovered is in both of these uh, cases, they detected levels of uh, PFAS 14 times above the, what the US EPA describes as the safe level for humans. So basically, these forever chemicals are now absolutely everywhere on every corner of our planet. And this has happened all, I say, since the 1940s, but particularly probably in more recent times since the 70s and 80s. And it does indicate, Ian, one of the great problems with the chemical industry worldwide. They produce this stuff. They push it out into the marketplace. And then it takes scientists, it takes activists, uh, it takes lawyers, years and sometimes decades to figure out what exactly is in the chemicals and then to chase them into court. And eventually, years and decades later, to persuade these companies to please stop poisoning us. John Gibbons, on that note, we will leave it there. Thank you very much for your contribution this week. Talk to you next Thursday. The last word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.